in your Bibles with me to Luke chapter 1. Luke chapter 1, verse 26. Luke chapter 1, verse 26. Now I'll be reading to verse 35. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth, to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. And Mary said to the angel, How will this be, since I am a virgin? And the angel answered her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you. The power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. Well, this evening, I I wanted us to consider Christ and to consider Christ in His incarnation. And his birth. And it is a mystery as we think about the incarnation of Christ that he who, who is infinite was yet an infant. You think about it. That he who is eternal was yet begotten. That he who is almighty was yet at the same time needy. That he who is sovereign was yet fragile. That he who is God yet made himself a man. One of the truths of Jesus Christ that we will never fully come to understand this side of heaven is the incarnation of God's Son. Known for his poetic style, the Puritan Thomas Watson, in contemplating the apparent contradiction of the God man, he asked how it could be that he who thunders in the heavens should cry in the cradle. That in the creation, man was made in the image of God, but yet in the incarnation, God would come to us in the image of man. That He would strip Himself of His robes of heavenly glory and cover Himself with the rags of humanity. And when we think about that, Christian, we ought to be baffled. We ought to be baffled when we give thought to the disparity that exists in the incarnation of Jesus Christ. Uh, We ought to be perplexed at the apparent contradiction of God becoming a man. That the Son of God would come truly God and truly man. And we say truly God and truly man and I know you've often you we often hear fully God and fully man, but we like to use the words truly God and truly man because if you were to say fully God and fully man, we would think that if he was 
fully God, then there, was, there would be no space for him to be man. Or if that he was fully man, there would be no space for him to be divine. And so we say he, that he's truly God and truly man. Even the Apostle Paul himself admitted his inability to truly grasp the mystery of the incarnation. He writes in 1 Timothy chapter 3, he says this, he says, Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness, that God, He, was manifested in the flesh. He said, we confess, it is a mystery of godliness. In our understanding, we cannot fathom the perfect union of these two natures, divine and human, in the one person of Jesus Christ. It is a mystery. It is a mystery. But when we consider the incarnation of Christ and what it accomplished, that that wonder, that mystery should turn to worship. That should be the end goal at the end of the day. When we consider what the incarnation accomplished, our wonder ought to turn to worship. Because think about it, Christian. What did the incarnation of Christ, what did it accomplish? It's this, that divinity was clothed in our humanity in order to save sinners. And this is, this is what the story of Christmas is all about. The story of Christmas, as we say, is the message of the gospel of Christ, that he would become the son of man that we might become sons and daughters of God. You know, I encourage you if you have the opportunity, I know it's hard, especially this Christmas season, whether you see family or not. But if you do, if you do have the opportunity to see your family, to see friends or coworkers, that you would let them know that this is what Christmas is about. That God would become the Son of Man so that we would become sons and daughters of God. That's what it is. That the incarnation is, is, is a story of God's unfolding plan of redemption that's in Christ. That's the incarnation. That God who, who could not die, God who could not die, became a man so that he might subject himself to death and that to die, a substitutionary death for sinners. Hebrews chapter 2 verse 9 says, Jesus Christ was made lower than the angels so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. That's the incarnation. Why was he made lower than angels? So that he might taste death for everyone. Galatians 4.4 says the same thing but in different words. God sent forth his son born of a woman under the law. That's the incarnation. The reason why is to redeem those who were under the law. So you see, the, the incarnation, the purpose of the incarnation is for re- redemption. It's for redemption. You know, you read the Gospel of Matthew. We open it up. The very onset, a baby is born. He's given the name Jesus. And we hear this in our children's sermon all the time. He's given that name Jesus because it says about this baby, he shall save his people from their sins. And so the incarnation at the end of the day is about the gospel of Jesus Christ. So again, it's not about the nativity scene 
uh, or any of those things. Um, this, I think it was yesterday, I was eating lunch with my oldest daughter, Cammy. I said, Cammy, what is Christmas about? Is it about Christmas trees? Because we just bought a Christmas tree for the first time ever. I said, is it about Christmas trees? Is it about presents or lights? She's all, no, it's about Jesus. And because you won't let us have a Christmas tree. I was like, but I just bought you one, you know. Uh, but that's that's it. The, the story of Christmas is about redemption, and to miss that would be really would be a failure on our part as Christians as we go about this Christmas season. And as Christians, as we think about the birth of Jesus, we can't forget that the cradle in which he was born in leads us to the cross. At the end of the day, the cradle leads us to the cross. That Christ came so that he might die. Philippians 2 says, Christ made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death. And so notice that the incarnation, you might have heard this, of Jesus Christ is often described as an act of humiliation. That's how Philippians says it. That the incarnation of Christ is referred to as an act of humiliation. But we have to understand that this act of humiliation, it didn't begin and end at the cross, but it really began in Bethlehem. And then it culminated at Calvary. And this is why he came to us as he did. I want us to take a... a a look at the account of Jesus' birth. And uh, as we do so, I want us to keep this in mind. Now, turn to Luke chapter 2, because that's where we find the account of his birth. And when we come to the account of Jesus' birth, Luke wants to first explain why it was that Mary, being from Nazareth, why did she have this baby in Bethlehem? Right? And so we go to Luke chapter 2. Look with me in verse 1. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This, this was the first registration from Quirinius, was governor of Syria. And all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth, to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem. Now, what seemed to be a very accidental event in history is really, if you notice, the hand of a sovereign God. God, as we so often find in the scriptures, he's orchestrating these events of time to ensure that the Messiah would come from the city of Bethlehem, fulfilling Old Testament prophecy in the book of Micah. You guys know this verse, but you, O Bethlehem, uh, you are... You who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel. You guys know that verse, that Old Testament verse. And that's what's happening right here in Luke chapter 2. As a decree comes from a foreign ruler, which leads to the fulfillment of a promise from God. Now I wonder, Mary here, being a devout and pious woman, knowing that she was carrying the Son of God because she was visited by the angel in chapter 1. If she knew that this baby would have to be born in Bethlehem, I wonder if she knew that from knowing her Old Testament. 
Because here she is at Nazareth, young Mary. She's probably scratching her head like, ah, the Son of God. I am bearing the Son of God. According to Old Testament prophecy, this, this Son of God is, is to be born in Bethlehem. How am I going to get there? And then this happens. A decree happens, right? And she's probably thinking to herself, oh my goodness, God is at work. God is doing something. He's taking me to Bethlehem. And she hears the decree. Uh, the decree, it was called, uh, it called for the registration of citizens. And the purpose for this registration was for the purpose of assessing taxes. So that's why they went. And it was a decree given by, and we read it here, Augustus, to which historians commonly call, they call him the Emperor of Peace, describing his reign. Because he didn't really go to war. But it's interesting that the Emperor of Peace, and by his decree, would pave the way for the Prince of Peace. And so this decree goes out requiring all Jews to make their way to their homeland to register for taxes. And so Joseph and Mary, they end up in Bethlehem. And so from so being from the line of David, Joseph, he takes his soon-to-be wife, Mary, who is very pregnant by now, and they pack up their bags, and they go off to Bethlehem, and the stage is now set for Jesus to be born. Now, I don't want to shatter your idea of Christmas, and I think we've said this at our church before, but Jesus was not born on Christmas. It's not like Bam, December 25th. It's like, here's Jesus. No, that's not how it happened. We need to throw out the idea that Joseph and, and Mary were traveling by donkey, and it was like snowing, and it was in the wintertime, and uh, they're barely surviving. No, that's not how it happened. The Catholic Church decided that they wanted a religious event to compete with the winter solstice, which was a pagan festival. And that's why I was not about the tree. But I gave in and I bought the tree because the tree has to do with the winter solstice and not really because there was a tree next to Jesus when he was born. But they decided, let's celebrate Jesus' birth on that day so that we can compete. Well, look with me in verse 6. And while they were there, the time came. Listen to the words there. The time came for her to give birth. So when Joseph and Mary arrived in Bethlehem sometime later, Luke tells us, when the time came, she gave birth. Now obviously, Luke means it to say that when Mary was having contractions, it was time for her to give birth. But there's more here in the language of verse 6 than that. It's because the Bible often tells us that when the fullness of time had come, that God sent forth His Son. And the reference there to the fullness of time is a reminder of the fact that God, from the very beginning of Genesis, He has been ordering all the events of history, not just one decree, but every movement in the universe has been working for God's unfolding plan of redemption. And so when the time came, Jesus was born. Now when we come to the actual account of Jesus' birth, isn't it kind of surprising just how brief the actual account really is? Notice that the, the Gospel of Luke covers 24 chapters, 
over a thousand verses. Yet one of the most crucial events in the whole of human history, the incarnation of Christ, is summarized in one verse. And notice with staggering simplicity. And this is what you're going to find if you go to the Gospel of Matthew, as it simply says there that Joseph knew her not until she had given birth to a son. That's all it says. And he called his name Jesus. The Gospel of Mark, the Gospel of John, they don't even give an account of the birth. And you're like, why would they not even give an account of the birth? Well, the reason why is because the very purpose of the Gospel writers is this, is to get to the cross. To get to the cross. And these gospel accounts, they are not these biographical sketches of Jesus. But rather, these gospel accounts, and this is why this proves it to us, they are rather messages of salvation. So that's why we don't even get a, a birth account of Mark and, and Mark and John. But of the accounts, the most descriptive of Jesus' birth comes from the Gospel of Luke. Again, a very brief account, a short summary. But what I want us to do now is I want us to look I want us to look in the details of his birth. Because when you look into the details of his birth, you can't help but notice such a such a contrast between what Mary was told, what we read in chapter one, what Mary was told about Jesus, and then the manner of his birth. There is a huge chasm between What was said to Mary about the baby that she was going to bear and just how he came into this world? Let's look back and look back with me in chapter 1, verse 31. Look at what the angel says to Mary. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great. He will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. Isn't that amazing? You'll notice that Mary was told that she would have a son described with the loftiest titles. The Son of God in verse 35. The Eternal King, verse 33. The Son of the Most High, verse 32. And so you can just imagine the expectations that she and Joseph must have had when they were about to give birth to their baby. But notice in Luke chapter 2, verse 7, that when she has the baby, we read, and she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. There's a huge contrast. A huge contrast between what Mary was told and how this little baby really came. You know, I think for expectant parents, usually with months before the baby comes, what are you usually doing? You're figuring out the names of your baby. Over Joseph and Mary, they already had the names for their baby. You're going to call him Jesus. And so, again, they're they're expecting 
I don't know, maybe a lofty burden. But it doesn't happen that way. Well, as we look at chapter 2 here, and as we dive a little deeper, as Mary was given three lofty, majestic titles for her newborn son, I want you to notice that we're also given three very simple details as to his birth. And details that really astound us because of the vast contrast between what she was told and the manner in which she came. Well, the first one is this. Mary being told that he would be called the Son of God. Notice the detail we're given in verse 7 is that she gives birth to her firstborn son. And here we see the Son of God being born. And it's amazing. It's such a cosmic contradiction that the Son of God would rest in the womb of a woman that he himself had created. That's a contradiction. You ever think about that? The the Puritan Thomas Watson, he writes this. He says, that the Ancient of Days should be born, that he who rules the stars should suck the breast, that a virgin should conceive, that Christ should be made of a woman, and of that a woman he himself made, that the branch should bear the vine, that the mother should be younger than the child she bare, and the child in the womb bigger than the mother. That's what the Puritan Thomas Watson said. Well, how do you make sense of this? It's such a contrast that the creator of the universe, the Lord of glory, the king of angels, became a man, taking our flesh and doing so from the very fragile beginning of life. And here's the thing. It's not that he was humbled. When we talk about the incarnation of Jesus, it's not that he was humbled, but that he humbled himself. He humbled himself, which is to say he wasn't forced. He wasn't coerced. He wasn't pressured by the Father, but rather he humbled himself. And he gladly came to us. That the Holy Son of God would come through the womb of a sinful woman named Mary to a sinful humanity. How could the Son of God do this? And then be born of a helpless infant? The answer is this. It's because he loved sinners. And so that he might be sympathetic to us as sinners. You know, we ask, why didn't Jesus just come down from heaven, a full man, strong and powerful, breaking through the clouds to save us from our sins? Why did he have to come to us as a baby? Well, it's because he knew that to save us, he would have to come to us at our weakest and most frail point. And so, came being born. You know, this week I FaceTimed Scott and Anita Leong, and they just had a baby, and their baby's three weeks old now, and they're holding this precious little baby, and it's funny, at every sound the little baby made, like a every little spit up, every little like, like I think it was like hiccuping, they're both like, they're like scared, you know? They're just like, it's all good. Just calm down. 
Uh, and I was seeing Scott in the background. He's changing the baby's diaper. And I could tell it's like, he's being very careful, right? And that's how it is when you have your first kid. You're very careful because you understand that this baby is utterly helpless and so fragile, so frail. And this is how Jesus comes to us. Again, he could have come breaking through the clouds, uh, riding upon the storm with trumpets of angels and all power, but he comes to us helpless. But there's another reason why he came to us in this manner. Again, when, when there's a newborn baby, and I know during this COVID season, there's been a lot of babies, and I've seen a few of them, all the attention in the room is on that little baby. Everyone is looking at the baby, watching the baby sleep. It's like when you watch a little baby sleep, you're like, wow, that little baby is so cute, just sleeping. Who wants to see a grown man sleep? Oh, it's like there's nothing, there's nothing nice about that, right? Uh, or watching the baby open its eyes. You're like, oh my gosh, oh my gosh. You know, even like me, I'm like, oh my gosh, this is so cute. Or wa- watching the baby make a little sounds like, who wants to see a grown man do that? Nobody wants to see that, right? And isn't it true, though, for us that what is most vulnerable is what attracts us most? Because it's so vulnerable. Why did the Son of God come as a baby? Again, he didn't have to. He could have come in storm and clouds and power, and there will be a time when he does come that way here. He comes to us as a baby because he knows the rebellion of our hearts. He knows that if he came and if he were to command us and put us in shackles and chains, we would resist with everything in us. And so he comes to us vulnerable and helpless to draw us to himself. And he comes helpless as we are helpless, weak as we are weak. Fragile as we too are fragile, so that no one would ever be able to say to Jesus, Well, Jesus, you don't understand me. So he comes to us in that way. The book of Hebrews says that he is our sympathetic high priest, that he was made like us in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service to God. The Son of God was born that we might know that we have a Savior who understands our weaknesses and our frailties. And that's why it was necessary for him to be given birth. Notice secondly here, that as Mary was told that Jesus would be a perpetual king whose throne lasts forever, this is what she was told, this eternal king is placed in a manger. And we're told because there was no place for them in the inn. Now, when I think about the kingship of God, I think about the heavenly description of what the prophet Isaiah saw in Isaiah chapter 6. This amazing picture of these six-winged creatures surrounding the throne of God, finding His majesty and His kingly royalty so overwhelming that they veil their faces and their feet as they fly in obedience to Him. And they sing, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. And you see, at every sound that came from these creatures, the heavens, they they quaked. And Isaiah describes that smoke filled the heavens. 
And the description of God that Isaiah provides is, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of His robe filled the temple. That's what I imagine when I think about the kingship of God. And here's what the Gospel of John tells us. He says that Isaiah said these things because he saw the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's where he belongs. Jesus belongs in untainted glory. He is King Jesus. He belongs in spheres and realms that that shake at the voice of angels continually praising him. He belongs in the in the heavens where he is exalted in majesty and power and glory and might. But when he comes to us, the eternal king comes to us in a manger. That is incredible. That he who is high and lifted up, that he was brought low. You see, it's such a it's such a contrast that through whom and for whom all things exist, that the eternal king would lie in a manger or come to us in a manger. You know, as if you're, or if you remember when you were a new parent and when you first had to buy stuff for your kid, um, remember what you bought? I remember when, uh, before Cammie was born, I'm like, what are we going to buy? We got to buy a crib. Got to make it all nice. You got to put like soft sheets. And even if you buy new sheets, you can't even put it on. You have to wash it. You have to use special soap, right? Y'all don't know this, but some people know this. But this is what you got to do. You got to put little bumpers around the crib so they don't fall through the little crack and suffocate. I don't know. You just have to do all these crazy things. But here comes Jesus. And he comes into a manger. And it's not that they had a crib or cradle there in the manger. But they put him in a feeding trough to feed the animals. They put the baby in a feeding trough that's used to feed the animals. And we might ask, why? Why why did God place his son and his incarnation in a feeding trough. Well, I would say to tell us that he was the bread of life, that whoever comes to him shall not hunger, and whoever believes in him shall never thirst, that he might give eternal life. What a picture it is for us. He came in a feeding trough in our humanity because as Mary had sung in Luke Chapter 1, verse 53. He came to fill the spiritually hungry with good things. So I don't think it's by accident. You see, that's what the incarnation of Christ was for. That he would come to us in our weak and frail humanity to a humanity that was spiritually starving to feed them, to save them. Luke wants to tell us that though he was the Son of God, he was given birth, and that though he was the eternal king, he was placed in a manger. Now, lastly and thirdly, that though he was the Son of the Most High, because that's what they called him, 
that he would be wrapped, and look at chapter 2, verse 7, in swaddling cloths. Notice there are no imperial robes here, but rather a swaddling cloth. Now, if you've ever gone clothes shopping for a baby, you'll, you'll notice that their clothes are the softest clothes. You know, Sometimes, uh, if we have to buy something for a new baby, we'll go to, the, we'll go to Target, go to the little baby section. I'm just holding something. It's so soft. And you sometimes just want to go like this, right? Because it's so soft. And their blankets are so soft. So like furry. Like soft furry. But swaddling cloths in the ancient Near East, they weren't made from the softest of cottons, but rather they were rough cloth bands. And they would use these cloth bands to wrap the baby, but before doing so, they would tie the limbs of newborn infants so that every limb was bound tightly and straight because they believed ignorantly that if they didn't do this, the limbs would grow deformed. So this is what they did. They bound the baby uh, with their limbs and bound them tightly because, again, they were, they were ignorant. They didn't know. They thought that their limbs would grow deformed. And so I want you to notice that he was bound ignorantly and tightly in the manger by strips of cloth. And just as he was bound in the beginning, he would be bound again. That as he was tightly bound at his birth, he would be tightly bound at his death. As he was tightly bound in ignorance, he was tightly bound by the hands of ignorant and sinful men. And that upon the cross to be crucified. And just as he was laid in a trough that was wooden, he would be placed upon something made of wood, from a, a wooden cradle to a wooden cross. And beloved, this is what amazes me as a Christian. Knowing this, knowing this, the Son of Man, the Son of the Most High, still humbled himself that he might show us mercy. I think that's amazing. 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 9 says, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that, by, so that you by his poverty might become rich. It's the purpose of the incarnation of Jesus Christ. And it's the wonder of the gospel message that he would come from the bosom of his father to the bosom of a woman in the rags of our humanity so that he might save us. And I want you to notice as we close here, as you look at Luke chapter 2, I want you to notice just who it is that the message of this birth comes to. Notice in chapter 2, here in verse 8, it comes to shepherds. This message of his birth comes to, to the lowly, to the simple, to the filthy, to the dirty, to the poor. And it's very telling that it comes to sinners. 
Verse 8 says, And in the same region there were shepherds out in the field keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them. They were filled with fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of a great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You'll find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. Amazing. The message first comes not to the king, not to the chief priests, not to the high priest, but it comes to shepherds. Simple people. Ordinary people. To the filthy, to the dirty, to the poor. To people like you and I. That's where the message of his birth, that's where it first went. And it's very telling about the gospel. Well, let's pray together and we'll bring, we'll close. Father, we thank you for our time. And as we consider, as we consider the incarnation of our Lord Jesus Christ, I pray that in his humility, we ourselves would be humbled. And that in being humbled, we would come to you in worship. You are worthy of our praise. You are worthy of our lives. And we pray that, Lord, tonight you would have encouraged us to be all the more faithful. That we would faithfully obey and follow you. We thank you for our time together. We pray these things in your son's name.